Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Eric Ostrich. Hello. And Michael Reese. Hi, Elixir friends. And today we're joined by our special guest, John Karstens. John, say hi. Howdy. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And Michael, I understand you and John have worked together before. Yeah, so um, John and I worked together for several years, a couple of years at a company called MX. And um, while we were there, I was an oppressed poor soul trying to uh, fight for Elixir adoption and losing that battle. Um, but along the way, me and John started hanging out and uh, doing Elixir stuff together. We, we built a NAT connector together a little bit. And then we, um, we were doing some build process things where our, our, we had a team of C++ developers. They would update the app and we would rebuild it and send it to a bunch of devices. And so all those devices would hold a WebSock connection open. That's something that Elixir is fairly good at. And so, uh, so we, we worked on some stuff like that together. And then subsequently, John moved on and is now working at SmartRent with uh, Frank Hunleth doing some really interesting nerve stuff. So uh, John, do you want to give us just a little bit more intro of what life has been since you uh, arrived in the promised land of working with Frank Hunleth? <laughs> it's uh, surprising, <laughs> very, very entertaining and full of, full of adventure, that's for sure. So we work with smart home devices, but basically for rental properties. And we're in the process of, of kind of collecting all of, all of this communication to a single hub, which we build and use nerves on. And then we use nerves hub to deploy and manage all these that are in apartments and, and other places. So, uh, there's tons of adventures there in trying to deal with nuances of both hardware and Erlang and Elixir. Nice. I know um, Justin Schneck's keynote at ElixirConf that was just over. Uh, he talked about, you know, so that SmartRent is one of those companies that's mentioned uh, like in the top three, you know, with uh, Latote and um, the FarmBot, you know, like, so it's one of those like kind of, you guys, it sounds like you guys have been using it for some time. And yet, are you, uh, that you've been contributing and being part of that NERVS community, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, John uh, actually helps to organize the NERVS remote meetup that we've mentioned a few times on the podcast as well. So um, I don't, I think, I think you were doing that before you went to to Smart Smart Rent. Is that right, John? Yeah, yeah. So we've been doing that meetup since I think last August, right? If I'm yeah. remembering remembering correctly, um, and I just. I joined SmartRent in March, so had a you know good little while of just toying around with nerves on my own before actually 
miraculously finding a job to work in it full time. Yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit of info, John, on what has, um, what kind, what parts of the nerves ecosystem have you been working on since going to SmartRent? I have been doing a majority, we should, I should say a good amount of my time has been spent in NerveSum. So in managing collections or groups of, of devices and being able to interact with them remotely or do firmware updates. And then, so a very high level there, but then a lot of my time has been spent in very low level stuff, like in uh, things like shoehorn or which is controlling basically app start order and the Erlang heart module to control like automatic re reverse if the firmware fails or something like that, where it gets a little more into how the hardware is booting up and how to control that and harden it and make sure that we can keep that true Elixir Erlang stance of of um, reboot or, you know, self-correct. That's, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, just to make sure, you know, when we're deploying devices out in the field, if anything goes wrong, we want to reduce the amount of time or we want to we want to restrict anybody having to go out and touch the device. So I've been doing a lot in that area of how to make sure it can recover or at least get to the firmware update server. So if it's bad, we can communicate with it and, and uh, lots of interesting stuff in that realm. I would love to hear about what kinds of devices you guys are deploying for smart rent. You know, that these, I, you know, we hear about it in the presentations like, oh, you guys are using these remote devices to help uh, either manage or uh, collect information and data. I'm just curious, like what kinds of devices, what kind of purpose are they serving for the business? So if you've ever worked with smart home stuff, um, there's lots of different brands and you can buy lots of different things, but not all of them really connect to the internet. They use protocols like Z-Wave or Zigbee. And then subsequently they have to have some sort of central hub that does the communication out to their services or on the internet or something like that. And so at SmartRent, because we're dealing with lots of these devices to avoid having to have a bunch of different hubs um, and to support lots of different brands, we have built our own custom design and built hub board, uh, basically using a BeagleBone Black Octavo chip. And with the, you know, the necessary communication modules, and then that becomes the central point in which we communicate with all these other devices. And so when we're talking about what we're deploying and having in the field, it's basically those hubs uh, to do that amount of communication with other devices, or things like light bulbs or locks or water leak sensors, things like that. So does that mean that those like water leak sensors, smart locks, those are basically existing products manufactured by someone else, but you just make them all um, connect together and kind of give a centralized place for, is it for the property managers or maybe for the tenants as well to, to be able to see all those, all the information from those devices? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of, it, we're not really building those components ourselves. So it's a lot of pre-existing uh, things with brands, you know, like Yale or, or Schlag or uh, Zapata, stuff like that, existing, maybe Phillips bulbs. I don't even know if we have any of those, but, but anyway, regardless, yeah, it's, it's all pre-existing and it's targeted for property managers and tenants and, and property owners. So there's, there's an aspect of it where the goal is to have systems in which property managers can easily interact with a vacant property to get a field. So when you have door locks or other things or thermostats, you can do showings and stuff without having to have a bunch of staff present to schedule times. 
And then when tenants are there, they can enjoy those you know, smart home features to use an app that we have to unlock or control blinds or other things like that. And then there's there's an aspect or an asset management part of it where where the leak sensors or smoke detectors or stuff like that will come in, in handy or even thermostats, you know, keep uh, the company's based out of Arizona. So there's lots of places in Arizona using this and you don't really want it getting too hot while it's vacant, right? But you don't want to waste a ton of energy. So so there's areas using that. And if nobody's in there, it's nice to have a leak sensor in case water goes everywhere. You want to know about it. Um, so we design around a lot of those and existing components and functions. Very cool. I, I can see a lot of uh, value for that. Um, so I know one of the other things uh, that I was really impressed with coming back to Elixir Conf. Um, so you were there, but we're going to, you gave a lightning talk, which we're going to come back to and talk about in a little while. Uh, but also during Justin Schneck's keynote, where he was talking about nerves, nerves hub, a lot of the interesting, cool stuff he talked about and showed off about halfway through the, the uh, presentation. I have a link in the show notes with the timestamp. So you can jump into that if you'd like. Uh, but that is where he starts showing this IEX style console uh, into a nerves device. And I understand you had something to do with that. Yeah, that was way fun. I think it was at the previous ElixirConf that this idea came up. And Connor, in his true fashion, the idea was prompted. And so he built something really quick. And months went on. And then I joined Smart Rent and I was working a lot of nerves up. And they said, hey, remember that this idea and thing Connor had? We should add that. And so they basically tasked me with it. And I went through helping build it. And it's actually a very interesting. We, I guess you want me to talk about the IO? Yeah, I would, I would love to hear a little bit about how do you actually get like the prompt from the device through the internets, down the other side of the internets to my browser. And then when I type something in, how does, how does that get back to the device again? Oh yeah. So I'll, I'll preface by saying this is all through Phoenix channels. Um, but IEX itself is no surprise, just another process with certain code or controls loaded into it. And it just works directly with IO. And the way IO works is it has um, what's called a group leader. That's basically, I don't know, I guess it, it, you could call it a supervisor, but not not quite, not quite. The group leader is like the manager that that is managing groups of processes and IO processes and, and the message handler. And so when you open up other IO ports or IO streams, they're all going to be sending back and forth between this group leader and the group leader itself is going to facilitate what to do next with those lines. And so it's a, it's a constant back and forth of, of IO saying, okay, I need you to draw this line. And the group leader saying, okay, I drew it. Here's what, what happened after that line. And this battle, not battle, but this, exchange back and forth. So what we did in Nerves Hub is the group leaders usually handled by Elixir or you know somewhere else or by a terminal process or something different. But uh, we used the socket connections to Nerves Hub and which is basically you know another gen server that we'd spun up and we start an IEX server which it has a little simple API to just say IEX server.run or something of that sort. And then we assigned that socket as the group leader, that little gen server as the group leader, group leader. And so now we can handle all the messages coming in back and forth and decide what 
we want to do with them. And in our case, we want them to go to Nurse Hub. So we send it up the socket up to Nurse Hub, and then we have a bunch of channels and broadcast messages and all that, all that stuff on the web UI to print the lines that it's given. And then when it, you need to submit a line or you need to add an action, we send that back down. And uh, this socket channel that's now the group leader on the device knows how to reference that back to the IO and server running. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So that was actually the easy part, believe it or not. It was a lot easier to get running and get this, <laughs> nice. this separate, the separate IEX server process running and sending messages back and forth. The hardest part was the uh, ASCII characters that you have to then display in the NERFs of web UI. I would say that's where I spend most of my work on, <laughs> just making that work. Do you mean like the ASCII characters for getting the console highlighting or like the colors or is it something else? Uh, yeah, colors, anything, any, any ASCII character you have to, you have to transpose into what you think the HTML counterpart is. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, yeah. and it's basically sending you one line at a time. And then we take each line and we print it out on the console or we have to transform it. And then we print it out and we're doing that on the fly as messages are coming in. And uh, there's some crazy, I learned a lot about ASCII coloring and characters doing this. I'm guessing pat, uh, binary pattern matching was very helpful. Uh, yeah, yeah. In this, in this sense, I didn't do a lot of that actually. I did a lot of recursion mm -hmm. because an ASCII, when it gets colored or something, there's usually a start point then it goes for a certain amount of time and then it and then it ends. So I did a lot of, there was actually a library that I found where a guy had done some of this and it's called uh, ANSI 2 HTML. And that's what I took and then just adjusted to, to fit all the other edge cases that we needed. Um, but it does a lot of recursion and, and finding those start points and then chunking, you know, groups of texts that seem to be colored based on these stop or start points and, and uh, yeah, goes off goes off of that. Stuff that I can fully take for granted because you've done all the hard work and I can just use it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. 
Um, one, one question I had as you were talking through this, um, something I've never bothered to look into, if, uh, so let's say somebody has opened up an IEX session through Nerves Hub, and so you have an IEX server running on the device. If I then like locally connect to that device, maybe over SSH on Wi-Fi or something like that, am I seeing that same IEX server? Is it like a, a registered named process that I'm going to then be in that same terminal session? Or do you have multiple IEXs running at the same time? How does that work? So in this case, uh, it's multiple. So if you were to SSH in and have it running in NerveSub, you're actually into two different IEX server sessions. And, you know, I don't think I've ever thought or thought about trying to do a, do a named registry or start an IEX server as a named process. So I don't even know if that's possible. That'd <laughs> so be cool. Next, next feature request. <laughs> it's like the Murphy's Law of feature requests. Whenever you think, oh, I never wondered if this is possible, that's the day you're going to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what is interesting, though, is that if you were to open up multiple tabs for the IEX session to the same device, uh, you will actually be into the same IEX session because it's on the socket and, and we're controlling. We're making sure we're not starting hundred different IX servers so we don't accidentally forget about one and now you've got like processes and memory full up on the device because you've gone to remote section or session so each new tab joins the same the same socket process which is holding a single IX session and in fact if multiple users are doing it it's tagged by username so you can sit there and I don't know almost pair on it on working on the same device and send commands to each other and you'll both get the same output. If for good or for better or worse, it, it's cool. You could do that there. I don't know if that's maybe the best use case, but but uh, <laughs> that was fun to put in nonetheless. So I yeah. imagine this feature is uh, a pretty powerful thing for being able to debug. Uh, I, I imagine it's equally de helpful for me to debug when I have the device next to me, but super powerful when it's already deployed. Like, have you seen that be a benefit to uh, to your devices and your deployments? Oh, absolutely. So like I was, I was mentioning before, a lot of the work I was doing was to make sure nobody had to physically go to a device if there was an issue. And so a lot of that work is to make sure that the startup of connecting to NerveSub is separate from our application and everything else. So no matter what's going on on the device, as long as it's got power, it will connect to NerveSub. So the firmware can be totally busted and, and forked. And uh, if it's connected to NerveSub, we can get in, we can look around some logs, we can decide we want to push a new firmware to it or something like that. But it definitely has helped, especially, so even amongst my team, um, we all will have development hubs and boards, um, but there's been quite a few times where, where it's, something's not working right and it's not really areas that I've been working in. And so I'll just, somebody else will get on and remote IEX and be able to get in. And I don't have to set up SSH or weird networking ports or opening stuff around my network or VPN. It's just easy and go to. Your comment about pair programming in, a, in an IEX session reminded me of in high school when a friend and I found out, I think the command is called wall in Linux. Uh, you can send messages to other people on the same Linux host. And <laughs> That's all we did for weeks. <laughs> we didn't learn anything else about computers after we knew that command. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this last this last session, I was working with Matt Lugwood 
Ludwig's on some stuff with our boards and <laughs> he was throwing out messages as atoms or strings every now and then to, and, and we've got Slack open right here, but for whatever reason, it not only became a tool to work with the device, but almost a new communication port where, oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't either. Try this command. Boom. That's great. Just like typing it all in the console there. Yeah. I should also preface while, or say, while the, the remote console is pretty neat, uh, it was very much created by backend developers. And so I have, it, it just, like, it doesn't look the most pretty. The um, input line is slightly offset. And after battling with CSS, I just gave up. You know, there's no tap completion. Uh, so there's definitely lots of work that could be done on it mm -hmm. that some of the little finer comb could come in and really clean up. But currently, in its current state, it's still very useful, very helpful, even with the little quirks that are there. So is that a request for contributions? Oh, absolutely. Anybody where, can come contribute. Where do people go to see that? Do they just go to the NERVS Hub GitHub page? Uh, yeah, so there's a NERVS nurse hub group. Um, this specific implementation is within the NERVS hub web repo. And the counterpart, there's also a library just called NERVS underscore hub, which is basically the client that you put on the device. And those two in conjunction are doing the communication back and forth. But the, the web UI would be in that NERVS hub web repo. Cool. All right. I think I found the right one. I put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, before we run out of time, we would love to talk about uh, the lightning talk that you gave, which I think is just fun because, you know, as uh, developers, as geeks, we recognize when we're over engineering something, but that doesn't mean it's not fun. It doesn't mean we don't find value still. And so we'll have a certainly have a link to the, the lightning talk and uh, the article that you wrote up about it. But I'd love to hear about like what this problem was that you encountered and how you thought you'd over engineer and have a fun solution. <laughs> okay. Uh, the problem I encountered was at its root, laziness and frustration. <laughs> we uh, had a really old ceiling fan that died. So we bought a new one. And of course, because of my, my affinity towards technologic things, I said, let's get one with the remote. That would be cool. And then we could control it from lazily in bed when I'm tired. Uh, but it proves to be very uncool because the remote frequently gets lost. Kids grab it. I don't even know why. Or it, the state of the fans is not controlled by the switch. So if the light was turned off and the remote is lost, flipping the switch does nothing. So it just became like oddly and surprisingly cumbersome to try to manage. So then I discovered that it just uses radio frequency. And, and it's not, there was nothing really special. And that just started down this foray into learning about radio and how to, how, what devices use it, how to interact with it. And uh, basically to, down to this effort of discovering how to solve it. So the lightning talk I gave was titled Nerves at 434 Megahertz. So because I discovered it was radio and because I really enjoy working with nerves, my, my end goal was I need to figure out a way to integrate this with my existing hardware nerves. And we should probably preface and warning that most things in your household that are controlled by radio are in that 300 to 430 megahertz range, which is technically a restricted band in the US. Um, but there's, there's, like there's, a, there's a billion little rules about it. But basically within the confines of your home or within a few meters broad, broadcasting at 434 megahertz, you should be just fine. But if you're sending it out miles, uh, somebody's going to get mad at you. 
you might go to jail and it won't be my fault. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing then you're your little broadcaster. You, you want the signal to be pretty, pretty weak then so it doesn't go very far. Yeah, so my, my transmission device is GPIO pin 4 on a Raspberry Pi with a jumper cable. That's it. It's, there's nothing special about it. Um, this, you, I, was, I just have to say, this is the best disclaimer I've ever heard on a podcast ever. <laughs> if you do this and you do it too much, then you will go to jail and it's not my fault. <laughs> that's, that's when you know that this is a good idea. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. So for people not familiar, a jumper cable literally just means a small wire. You can buy bundles of them on like Amazon or uh, other electronics sources for a few dollars for like a couple hundred of these little wires. Um, and they're just really easy to connect and disconnect from the pins on a GPIO. They just, they like, you can just push them on and they, they press fit basically into place. Um, so John, does that little wire, basically it just becomes a small low power antenna? Yep. Mm. Yeah, so you could get real scientific about it and you could measure out an antenna, the length of antenna you need for the exact frequency you need to get you know, a good broadcast out of it or something um, and coil it and get all fancy. But if, for my use case, I just plug in a jumper cable and I don't even care. It works, it works from corner to corner in my house, so it's good enough for me. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011 and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. So then is the, is the grand vision of this device that you'll have it in your bedroom as a stationary thing with a big button on it or something? So what I actually did was two part. So I, I have many projects like this. I basically have one Raspberry Pi that's hosting lots of implementations for all these projects. And I actually gave a talk at MPEX New York about most of these. And so I have this in my basement and I have this website that I use at home. And I guess I should get into the premise of it because it is radio frequency. It's just a really simple signal. And there are lots of easy ways you can record it, which is in radio terms called a replay attack, where you try to record a signal and then you decide to replay it back at a different time from a different device to copy what's going on. And so what I had done is recorded the signal of every button on this remote. And then I made this little library, which I present at the talk. It's, it's basically not required. It could be used as 
as a starting point. It's called a replex. Um, people don't have to use it, but it's just a compilation of here's what I did in order to replay these signals back. And it includes binaries for another project I found called RPITX, which is a guy who has done lots of crazy work to make to make a Raspberry Pi be able to transmit between, I think it's five, five kilohertz to 1500 megahertz range, something like that, uh, just with a single GPI open. And so I recorded all these signals with another device. Oh man, we're like getting deep into the woods here. <laughs> Uh, there's there's another device called a software defined radio dongle or SDR, and that's that can be used to listen in on radio signals. Like it's it's actually a very powerful device, and it and it offloads a lot of the work of dealing with radio signals into the software instead of the, the traditional hardware. And you so you can get this little little really small USB device and an antenna and get a really wide wide range of radio signals in which you can watch in on or you know, you can listen to radio on it if you wanted to. Or in my case, I used it to record signals of my simple fan remote. So once I got all that, I have it on this little Raspberry Pi. This little Raspberry Pi then has just has simple functions that when that will blast this the signals that I want to turn the fan on or off or turn the light on, all that jazz. And I have a web page that is now on my phone that I use to control the buttons and, and stuff for the remote. Um, have you, John, found any technical solutions for the problem of children wanting to steal remote controls? Because that is actually a general class of problems that I can't seem to solve in my life. All right. I've got an idea for that one. So you have some dummy remotes that are sitting around and they're electrically statically charged. So they shock you. <laughs> nah, kids, kids are too smart, man. They know. They know that they're not the real thing. <laughs> so my current solution is to, so I've got all the radio remotes covered. Anything in my house that has a radio uh, or that use RF or frequency on the remote, I now have that all copied and onto this little Raspberry Pi. So now I'm working into infrared and maybe I'll have something more on that in a month or two. But oh trying to replace, my gosh. My current goal is replacing all remotes in my house with my phone and my voice. And right now I have that working for radio. Very cool. Well, we will have to get an update on that. In, <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll be pinging you every day in 30 days to find out what's going on with IR. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. Well, that's probably a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else we want to touch on? Make sure we, we talk about before we go to picks. All right. Well, let's go to picks. Eric, do you have something? Sure. So inspired by the talk today, uh, I've got so I've got two picks. The first one is uh, it is a ANSI parser in JavaScript. So I, I've also dealt a lot with uh, ANSI escape codes from Telnet games, but it, it ends in the same place of like a terminal. So this is a there's no docs for it, so you'll have to like dig around a bit. But <laughs> um, this is used in my side project Grapevine. That there's a web client that parses that takes the telnet data, shoots it to your browser, and then the browser actually parses it. So I, I went the the, uh, the client side instead of the, I think Nerves Hub is doing it in uh, the server with live view stuff. So this is a, a different side of that. Um, it's kind of interesting to deal with because there's a lot of like state machine things you have to deal with because it's like turn on background green and then like five letters later, turn on like foreground white and then eventually like later on it might reset or change colors you have to like deal with all that so anyways that's cool and then um 
we were talking before we we're actually recording about um some rc planes and remind i was reminded of something called i think this was a real flight it's a simulator that has like a little uh controller for remote control planes and, and helicopters so i used to do this as a kid so it's just cool little reminder go yeah go check it out that's it nice yes yeah it, so it was cool just like looking at these uh the, the product and like you know it comes with like an the rf you know handheld device with the little toggles and everything so you can train your kid so they don't crash your real planes or helicopters so that's cool and michael do you have something sure uh i'll piggyback off of eric's last pick there um there is a simulator tool called wings 3d that i'll post a link to this is a project i don't know i haven't heard a lot about it recently but the first time that I actually started learning Erlang before Elixir was really a thing, this is a project that I heard a lot about. Um, people were having a lot of debates about um, what things is Erlang fast for and which things is it not fast for. And uh, a simplistic answer that you might hear a lot of times is like, oh, if there's a lot of number crunching, it's not good for that. Um, but I have a, but someone was posting this as kind of a counterpoint to that. Um, so it, it does simulation and like ray tracing and things like that, which are very mathematically computationally intensive, um, but it does it in Erlang. And the reason it can do it in Erlang is because they've picked data structures, which are specifically efficient for these types of operations. So anyway, um, very interesting project. But uh, the other thing I wanted to pick uh, in the last couple of episodes, I've mentioned a few times remote control airplanes. And I recently grabbed a, an airplane called the Flight Test Sea Duck. Um, this is modeled after the cartoon in the 90s, which was a, a personal favorite of mine called uh, Tailspin. Uh, you might remember it because there was a huge airplane and a kid would hold onto a little tow rope and fly behind the airplane. That was amazing. Completely doesn't work. Tried it multiple times in different ways. But... Uh, all of them ending in injuries of, of some kind or other, but the remote control airplane totally works. Uh, and so I've been having a ton of fun. My kids are all having fun. Um, and it's, it's honestly just been a, a huge, uh, just a huge chance to spend time outside with my kids doing stuff with their hands. Um, and if uh, the link that's provided there, you can buy like all the things needed, like battery and motors and everything that are the right, um, that are right matched to that model, or you can just buy the model if you have some of your own RC stuff. So anyway, it's been a ton of fun and it's a really high quality model and I cannot stop singing the Tailspin theme song now. So uh, user be warned. Man, Michael, next time we get together, I'm, it's gonna be like story time with Michael and you're gonna tell me all about these crazy adventures you've had trying to windsurf like that. <laughs> uh, so my pick today is I saw this morning uh, Elixir 3.2 was released uh, and the GitHub change log is uh, in the show notes. And what I thought was most interesting is that there was a new feature is support for SQL CTEs. And when I read this, I'm like, I don't know what those are. And so I started reading about uh, these Postgres SQL. It's like Postgres, MySQL. I know, I'm actually not sure about MySQL, but I know uh, Microsoft SQL Server, uh, they all support these features. And what it is, is like uh, from the, the docs, they say, generally speaking, you should only use CTEs for writing recursive queries. Non-recursive CTEs can often be written as joins or subqueries, which are, have better performance. And the, the description or example they were giving is say you have a category that can have 
like as a database table, you have categories and it can have a parent ID, which is recursive and goes to it like a parent, uh, another category. So you have a nested data structure within one table. And CTEs are a good way to navigate that recursively till it reaches the end. And it's like, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. I've missed that. Maybe it was a newer feature to SQL. Uh, but then, so Ecto now has support for that built in. So I thought that was cool. So that's mine. John, what do you have? Uh, my pick is random because I think that this community would enjoy it. It's a book that I have read recently and it's called Off to Be the Wizard. And it, which I think anybody who programs or knows programming or enjoys computers should go and read, uh, especially if you like The Matrix. It's like The Matrix and nerd and programmers, but they're nerds and they decide to use it like magic instead. Um, so it's it's super fun. It's really quirky and silly. And uh, if you're looking for a next, your next book to read, to waste a little time, go check it out. Yes, John was telling us about that before the call, and it sounded pretty funny and uh, like a, a good read. And it sounded like it was youth-friendly. Like so like, you know, if your kids are interested in Harry Potter or something, it's in that vein. So that sounds awesome. Well, John, I had a lot of fun, and then it was good for us to catch up with you and kind of learn about how some of that stuff worked behind Nerf's Hub and what you've been doing with RF signals and all the good stuff. So if people would like to follow you online or connect with you, where should they go to do that? Yeah, so you could find my Twitter page. My Twitter account is John at John Karstens, um, or I'm on pretty active in the Slack channels, either in the Nerf's, or Nerf's channel of the Elixir Slack or you can join our Nerves Remote Meetup group. Uh, we have a Slack channel as well. Has a little bit more history through it. And I guess you can even find me on GitHub, which is uh, JJ Karstens. Awesome. We'll have some links to those in the show notes. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.